Christ Jesus our Lord. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name, worship the Lord in holy array. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time, in this place, same grace that you have given to your people throughout the ages, but we thank you for giving us grace now. And so with one accord, we make our prayers to you, we sing our praises to you, we listen to your word, we eat the food set before us, and we pray that you would come and be present with us so that we would hear your word and that you would set our hearts upon Jesus Christ and that we would always have our faith and confidence in him. For it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Our first hymn is number 16, Come, Let Us Sing Unto the Lord.
Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not our sins or our transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember us for your goodness sake, O Lord. Let us then, with this, these great words of Scripture, let us confess our sin to Almighty God. God, our Father, who is rich in mercy and with whom is plenteous forgiveness, remember not the sins of our youth nor our transgressions. Blot them out for the sake of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, who became the sacrifice for our sins. For the sake of his crimson blood, let our sins be forgiven and let them be imputed to us no more. In the name of our blessed Savior, we pray. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. By the authority of Jesus Christ, I declare to you that all those who have faith in him and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. We rejoice at this good news, and we say together, praise be to God. When God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, redeeming them from slavery and establishing them as his own people, that's when they really became the nation of Israel, he called them in response to obey him, and he gave them the Ten Commandments, the sixth of which is this, you shall not kill. Human beings were created in the image of God, and what is more, it is as a human being and for human beings that God himself came in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. For this reason, you Christian people are to value and preserve and protect human life. Most obviously, of course, that means you're not to murder. But this commandment also cuts deeper. It's not just our actions, but our thoughts that come under the searching eye of the Lord of life. It is not enough simply to refrain from literally killing our neighbors. The important thing is actually to love our neighbors. There's what's forbidden, but there's also what's required. So we are to love our neighbors, including our enemies, as ourselves. We have no right of ourselves as individuals to take human life. Neither are we to hate or be angry with a brother or a sister. Rather, we are to follow the pattern of Christ. The sixth commandment calls us to value human life, to honor the image of God in people. It calls us to lend our support to everything that tends toward the promotion and preservation of life, including the lives of the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the elderly, the unborn, and so on. It calls us to promote promote peace, peace between individuals, peace between groups and classes, peace among the nations. It commits us to this cause of human freedom and dignity, and it calls us personally to put to death within ourselves all that tends toward selfishness and callousness and lack of love. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you to honor the image of God in all people and to strive in the strength of the Lord to love as you are loved by him. Let us, let us uh, give thanks and say together, Amen. Our hymn is number 463, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. Alone of covenant mercy. 
I see I fear with your righteousness on my person and offering to bring terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do my Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view the work which his goodness began the arm of his strength will complete his mercy Let us pray. O Holy Father, our Father, through Jesus Christ, we offer our prayers to you with thanksgiving and for your gracious care for us. We thank you that you continue to help us, and we remember that our Savior taught us to pray for each other, and how he went to the cross and prayed for the forgiveness of even those who persecuted him. And so now we follow our Lord in prayer. You are the Lord of heaven and earth, whose name is blessed on every shore. We pray for the church throughout the world, for the old and new churches of India and in China and Eastern Europe, and our missions in Asia and Ukraine with Mike McCabe and Sam Folta, Hiro Hakobor, and their families. We pray for the old churches of Europe and the Christian missionaries we know there. We also pray for the churches that are threatened in places such as Egypt and Ethiopia, Niger and Nigeria. We pray for weak churches in Europe and the United States that seem more interested in adapting to the ways of our culture and society than maintaining the proclamation of the gospel. Renew their joy and faith in Jesus Christ and their integrity, and commitment to him. Here are prayers for the church around this world. Father, you are just, and you do not let the wicked go unpunished. So we pray for peace and justice to prevail in this land. We pray for our nation and those who lead it, for our president, our senators and representatives, those who lead our state and cities, 
And may they be guided by a dedication to the welfare of all the people they serve and wisdom to uphold the rule of law and good order. Hear our prayers for those who rule over us. God of mercy, from whom every good and perfect gift comes, we thank you for the work we have to do. We pray for our managers and production workers, teachers and students, nurses and doctors, secretaries and law officers, for mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, sisters and brothers and friends. And grant that we might receive from you the strength to do our work and the grace to make it beneficial for others. Hear our prayers. Now we ask for your mercy. Grant to those who do not trust you faith. Grant to those who are sick healing. Grant to those who face death trust in Christ. Grant to those who despair hope. Grant to those who live in fear courage. Grant to those who mourn comfort of their, of their soul. And we especially remember people who have suffered tragedy recently. So as these prayers go forward to you, may we think of specific people and, and the ones that are on our minds. We bring them to you. Almighty Father, watch and take care of this flock of your holy people. Make them quick to hear and learn the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as they hear your word, may they seek to love you and others more than themselves. May they live as the people of the new creation and kingdom of Jesus Christ. We pray for all those who are sick and hurting in this congregation or among our friends. We pray you would make them whole, that you would heal their diseases and pains of all sorts, O Lord, and that you would uphold them even when their lives are coming to an end. We pray for Don and Frida, for Eduardo and Shirley, for Jeff and Linda, Bob and Fawn, for Tammy's family, for our friends Becky and Caroline, Phil, Tom, Vicki, Jane, Angie, Karen, and others we name to you in silence. As you are the salvation of the world, give us the grace and desire to be your witnesses and live according to your kingdom here in Southfield and in the various communities where we live. Bless all those who give themselves for the service of others as they follow in the steps of your blessed Son, who came not to be served but to serve, so that with patience and wisdom and courage, these, his followers, may minister in his name to the suffering, and to the friendless, and to the needy. And finally, Lord, we pray that we would meet students from LSU and that we would be able to begin a Bible study there. All these blessings and mercies we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
Please be seated, and uh, we join together now in um, praying for God's illumination on our reading this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word, for giving us a place to uh, read it together, hear it together, um, and hear preaching uh, together. And we pray now that you would send your spirit, because we know that by our own wisdom it cannot um, benefit us, but that by your spirit these are the words of eternal life. Uh, May your spirit be with us now to open our hearts and open our minds um, and open our ears that we may hear and understand and believe and love your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading this morning comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision." Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is, coming to, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who it makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. 
The Psalter response this morning comes from Psalm 77. I cry aloud to the Lord, to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. When I, rem- Sorry. when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Our epistle reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has appointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Finally, our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 14 through 27. 
But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The word of the Lord. We've been hearing stories from Daniel when the Jews were in conflict, and our reading this morning is another one. The first few stories in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, are, are more straightforward when compared to the second half of Daniel, which is full of symbols and strange figures like animals, beasts, and horns. However, we can still pick up, even with the, the more uh, difficult readings of the second part of Daniel, we can still pick up that the Jews were in conflict, even with all those symbols. If nothing else is clear, the last couple of verses of Daniel chapter 9 that we heard read this morning spell out a crisis as they speak of the city and its sanctuary being destroyed and rebuilt in a troubled time with desolations and abominations. So clearly there's there's a a conflict or a uh, difficult time going on. Now all of this got me thinking about the history of Israel in scripture and it posed a question, when was Israel not in conflict? Clearly, God's people were in conflict when they were in Egypt as slaves. The book of Exodus begins, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, the Egyptians, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Egypt set itself against the Jews. And the Jews' life in Egypt was a time of conflict and crisis uh, when this new pharaoh came along. After Israel left Egypt, God led his people into the wilderness where there were people who attacked them like the Amalekites. Exodus 17 says that then Amalek came and fought with, the, with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. 
Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And God intervened for Israel. They routed the Amalekites, but it was still a time of crisis. And also in the wilderness, Israel encountered the kingdom of Moab and its king, Balak. Balak sent the seer Balaam to curse Israel. So there was more conflict in the wilderness. Forty years passed, and Israel crossed the Jordan and began migrating into the land of Canaan. And there was conflict in the land, in that land. The books of Joshua and Judges tell the stories of the conquest of the promised land. And to the south were the Amalekites and the Edomites. To the east were the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Moabites. To the north were the Sidonians and the Hittites. To the west were the Philistines. And in the middle were the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Kenites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites. It's a lot of ites all in and around where Israel was settling. Israel did not conquer all of these kingdoms. Many times Israel sinned against God, which resulted in some of its enemies overpowering God's people and raiding their farms and cities. So Judges 6 says, And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. More crisis, more conflict. Israel settled in the land of Canaan. The conflict continued, but they asked for a king, and God gave them one. And it was the start of the monarchy in Israel, but the conflicts did not subside. Other kingdoms and nations continued to assault Israel. The kings were constantly going out to battle or repelling foreign armies. Even David, who expanded the territory of Israel and dominated most of Israel's opponents, spent most of his life in conflict. And at the beginning of his life was that great story of his confrontation with Goliath, which was he was actually a, a fierce hero of the Phil, Philistine army. But near the end of his life, there were still wars with the Philistines. So David was known, and he's called in Scripture, a man of war. King Solomon's reign was more peaceful than the other kings. When he ruled, the nations came to him, and they brought him gifts. However, in this time of relative peace and quiet, the threats were still all around Israel. And 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings, tells us that Solomon loved many foreign women from the very same nations that had been enemies of Israel, like Egypt and Moab and Ammon and Edom and so on. And they turned his heart after, other, after their gods. It only grew worse under the later kings. There was conflict during the time of the monarchy. And then came the exile and the crisis for Israel under the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks. We've been hearing about that in the book of Daniel. And then later actually came the Romans. So as I thought about it, there was always some level of crisis or conflict for Israel. Threats, conflict, enemies were always there during Israel's existence. But at times, the crises intensified, such as when Israel was in Egypt under the Pharaoh and, or when Israel was oppressed by the Midianites or when King Ahab imported foreign gods into, into uh, Israel. It intensified even more during the exile. These were the standouts of the ongoing conflict for for Israel. There was always some kind of potential conflict or some pressing conflict around Israel, but there were times when it intensified, and those those are the times that really stand out and are, are highlighted in Scripture. 
This review of Israel's history shows us that there was always a conflict for Israel. It just intensified at certain times. And I got to thinking, it's sort of like living in a room, uh, living in room temperature all the, all, most of the time. We live in a temperature that is set, and it's, it's, con- it's more or less constant. But every once in a while, the heat index rises outside, and it becomes hotter. And that's kind of like how it was for Israel. Living in the world, it was sort of at a, a mean temperature, but every once in a while, it intensified and heated up. Now, our reading from Daniel is one of those intense periods. It's the intensity of the time when Antiochus IV was king and had invaded Judah and took control of the temple. Antiochus was intensity gushing out of intensity, or intensity times two. To get a sense of how much of a crisis the exile and Antiochus was for the Jews, all we need to do is consider the number of writings, the multiple number of Jewish writings about it. Some of them are a part of our Bible. Much of Daniel is devoted to this intense conflict. The book of Zechariah is also about this time, and so is part of Ezekiel. There are other Jewish writings, though, that we don't have in our Bible that were dedicated to the crisis of Antiochus IV, like 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, 4th Maccabees. And when there is so much written about a particular time in the life of Israel, especially when books were far fewer than they were today, you know it was intense. When you have so much being written about it um, coming from the Jews, you know it was intense for them. And our lesson this morning concentrates on an intense time in the conflict of the Jewish exile. And our reading from Daniel essentially tells a story. And unfortunately, this gets lost on us when we single out the symbols and the numbers and the weeks and we try to decode them or fit them into some other narrative. First, we must listen to God's word from Daniel. And it's a story that uses weeks and numbers and desolations to tell its story. And this makes the story not sound like a story, but more like a timeline. But we need to, make, need to remember it's not a chronology as much as it is a story. A story of the intensity of the conflict with Antiochus IV who desecrated God's temple and basically brought conflict to the Jews. Therefore, what I'm going to do is tell the story in a way that you can hear it. That's a little, I think for us anyway, a little more plain, um, but very much following the the story the way it's uh, the story in Daniel 9. Now, Daniel was praying and confessing his sin and the sin of Israel. Last week we heard that great confession uh, that he made. He was pleading for God's forgiveness and mercy, and he was pleading for the temple in Jerusalem when the angel Gabriel came to him. Wouldn't that be really alarming, or I don't know what it would be, just amazing if you're praying and boom, an angel appears before you, angel Gabriel. What does that mean? Again, we're the kind of people that would become fascinated with the angel and, and concentrate on him, and that's not the point here. The point is the angel is a messenger sent by God, and that makes Gabriel's message a message from God. That's what's important here. Gabriel's message was the divine interpretation of what the prophet Jeremiah said in the writing that bears his name in the book of Jeremiah. There's uh, some lines in there about what uh, what God 
uh, said to uh, Israel in mostly in chapter 25 and chapter 29 of Daniel uh, of uh, Jeremiah. And so Daniel actually refers to Jeremiah in verse 2 of chapter 9. It says, In the first year of Darius's reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So Daniel was considering what the prophet Jeremiah said. He was considering a verse like Jeremiah 29.10 that says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. God promised to bring his people back to the place of Jerusalem and the temple. And Daniel was considering this because the time was overdue. The Jews had been released from Babylon. They had been returning back to Judah. In fact, they had rebuilt the city walls and the temple. But the conflict had not had only intensified. It had not uh, gone away. It had intensified under Antiochus IV. So Daniel was pondering when it would be over. He didn't understand. So God sent Gabriel to Daniel to help him understand the period of the 70 weeks. Significantly, Gabriel came when the evening sacrifice was being offered at the temple. He came to interpret for Daniel the time of the 70 years mentioned in Jeremiah. And this is what Daniel says in verse 22. He, gave, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have, not come out, I'm sorry, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Daniel listened with rapt attention. And this is the story that Gabriel told him about the 70 weeks. It's actually 77s. It doesn't say weeks. It says sevens, but that usually gets interpreted as weeks. As Gabriel tells the story, the 77s is a way of interpreting history in that period of the exiles, uh, exile of the Jews. And the numbers are not meant to be an exact chronology. If we try to do that, and scholars have tried to do that, it always runs into problems. It's rather used to show God's plan during the crisis precipitated by the exile of the Jews. Okay? So there can be some, some definite time in it. But it's also uh, just showing periods. Because it sounds confusing with all the weeks, here's the story of what happened during this time and the divine insight into it. So in 587 B.C., in the year 587 before Christ, the army of Babylon conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The Jewish nobility and those Jews who had some skill, like ironsmiths and masons and administrators and craftsmen, they were led away to live as captives in the kingdom of Babylon. There were Jews who were left in Judah um, when the exile started because the Babylonians considered them unimportant. We don't need you. Just stay here. And all they lived in were piles of rock and decimated farms, but there were some Jews who stayed, but the Jews who went were the ones the Babylonians desired. And it was a time that God decreed in order to put an end to sin and atone for Israel's sin. Verse 24 in Daniel 9 says that. It was a time of dealing with Israel's sin. About 40 years later, around 539 B.C., so 539 years before Christ, the Persian king Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon and allowed the Jews to return to their homeland, and many of them did. They actually started coming back in successive waves. It wasn't like just they just 
jumped up and all of them came back at the same time. They came back in series and waves. And according to Ezra chapter 2, verse 2, they were led by Zerubbabel, who was the grandson of one of the last kings of Judah, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was one of the last kings, and his grandson was Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was um, a leader of the Jews coming back to uh, Judah. Along with him was a priest named Joshua who worked alongside Zerubbabel. When the Jews returned to Jerusalem, they began to rebuild the walls of the city and the city itself. And it took some time to rebuild the temple, but stage by stage it was constructed. The crisis of the exile seemed to be coming to an end. You can see why they would think that, right? It seemed to be coming to an end. Gabriel gives this interpretation in verse 25 of our reading. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And the prince was Zerubbabel, who led the Jews out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. As Gabriel says, for a lengthy period of time, 62 weeks, it's, a, it's just representing this period of time, and the temple was built, again, with squares and moat, but verse 25 says it was a troubled time. There was still conflict, but things were happening. There seemed to be restoration happening with the Jews in Jerusalem and Judah. It was still a con- time of conflict, but it wasn't as intense as before. And then came the Greeks... And there was more conflict. Under Alexander the Great, the Greeks defeated the Persian armies. They conquered the Persian Empire. And later, the Greek king, Antiochus IV, came right at the Jews in Judah and took control of Jerusalem. He demanded that the Jews become Greeks, and he built Greek gymnasiums. He built Greek schools in Judah. He desecrated the temple in Jerusalem with an altar to Zeus. And now it had become a time of intense conflict for the Jews. Some of the Jews who lived there in Judah apostatized and began to live like the Greeks. In other words, they sort of abandoned their faith and their um, way of living for God according to the Torah, and they began to follow the Greeks. They married Greek men and women. Instead of using Hebrew names, they used Greek names. They made sacrifices to the Greek gods. But there were other Jews, like the family of Mattathias, whose sons are the famous sons, the Maccabeans, uh, Judas, Maccabeus, and Simon, Jonathan, they, that family resisted Antiochus IV and gathered a lot of Jews around them who waged guerrilla warfare against Antiochus. During this time, there was a faithful priest in Jerusalem named Onius III. Antiochus IV replaced Onius with Onius's brother, whose name was Jason, Jason was a Jew. Do you notice anything strange about Jason the Jew? It's his name. What Jew is named Jason? (laughs) That's a very Greek name. So anyway, he was willing to work with Antiochus and turn Jerusalem into a Greek city. Not long after that, Onias III was murdered. And Gabriel interprets it this way in verse 26. He says, After the 62 weeks, an anointed one, that would be Onius III, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the leader who is to come, that is Jason, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Jason corrupted and devastated Jerusalem by trying to make it Greek. He was hostile. The intensity escalated and is called the last week by Gabriel. 
And that's when the Greeks and some of the Jews, like Jason, agreed to work together. In other words, they made a covenant. And they agreed to work together during this time. And so everything had intensified. They desecrated the altar in the temple by erecting an altar to Zeus and by offering pigs on it for sacrifices. And such things are forbidden by the law of Moses as unclean and unfit for sacrifice to God. The desolator had come to Jerusalem. And here is how Gabriel puts it in verse 27. He says, And he, Jason, shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations abominations shall come one who makes desolate. The exilic crisis seemed to be finished when the temple began to be rebuilt, but then along came Antiochus IV and Jason. And even though it looked like the powers of chaos and evil would overwhelm God's people, Gabriel, Gabriel reinforces that God is ruling over it all. The Lord's messenger keeps saying in our reading, he says it a couple times anyway, that it's decreed. And in the last line, Gabriel makes a promise, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The intensity in the crisis did not mean things were spinning out of control. Daniel's in a position where he's wondering, what's going on? I thought it was going to be over. But Gabriel tells him it's not spinning out of control. God was in control, and the intensity in the crisis was predetermined, and God will stop it. So our reading is a story of God's people in conflict and God's promise. Now, since Daniel chapter 9 talks about the times... It leads us to consider the times for the church. We're talking about sweeping periods of time here, and I thought it would be appropriate for us to to review a little bit the times for the church. We Christians have lived in conflict, and sometimes it has been intense conflict. It is varied. The church has spread out across the world, and in doing so, there was always some level of conflict, but in some places it was more intense than in others. Churches in one place were being disturbed and attacked, while churches in other places were tolerated. The early church started in Jerusalem and expanded into Judea and then out into the Jewish diaspora. The Jews had been spread, uh, had been dispersed in and around the um, cities and uh, empires around the Mediterranean Sea. And so the Jews, as they spread out, were kind of following the same trajectory. And at the beginning, the Christians had much contact with the synagogues and the Jews. The book of Acts tells, uh, says the Apostle Paul went to the synagogues as was his custom. So he, at the beginning of his ministry, was going to these synagogues in the different cities. But during this time, the Jewish leaders were arresting the Christians and trying to shut down churches. There was conflict, and in some cities it was intense. You remember the story in Acts chapter 7 of the martyrdom of Stephen. He's a Christian. He was a Christian in Jerusalem who bore witness to Jesus Christ and he was stoned to death. So there was a conflict going on and it intensified in places like Jerusalem. The conflict for, for the church continued during the time when Rome was an empire and dominated the world around the Mediterranean Sea, which is also where the church was spreading. And at times, the conflict became intense when local Roman magistrates demanded that those who lived in their district offer sacrifices to Caesar at the local temples. All the cities had some kind of an altar, shrine to the emperor, and everyone was expected once a year to come and make offerings to um, the Caesar. And it wasn't just a political bowing to the authority of of, uh, Caesar. It was also a religious thing. Caesar um, was presented as divine. 
Many of the Christians refused to worship any Lord but Jesus Christ, and often they were arrested and imprisoned. It was intense for the church, and once in a while, the Roman persecutions rose to the level of an empire-wide persecution of the church. And one of those was during the reign of Diocletian from 303 to 313 A.D. after Christ's death. There was a series, or after his birth, there was a series of edicts rescinding legal rights for Christians. Christians had made some ground in the Roman Empire, and Diocletian and and the Senate passed uh, decrees that took away these rights and demanded that the Christians comply with traditional religious practices. In other words, worship the emperor. And approximately during this time, 3,000 to 3,500 Christians were martyred. It was an intense time for the church in the Roman Empire. But that was the last formal persecution in the Roman Empire, and the church was given a legal status with Constantine, and the conflict against the Christians seemed to settle into a calm period. Then Islam rose up. Again, the regular level of conflict for the church rose, especially for those churches in the Middle East and North Africa. The intensity of conflict from Islam wrecked the church in North Africa. The ultimatum was given as the Islamic armies came in and began to convert the society and the culture into a more Muslim way of life. The ultimatum was given to the Christians in the territories, in the Muslim territories of North Africa, that they must either convert to Islam or move out. Many Christians traveled back to Europe. But the end result was that, for the most part, the church in North Africa was decimated. The conflict from Islam against the church continued for several centuries, and it reached beyond Africa up into Europe. During the medieval age in European society, Christianity had a great influence on society, and conflict seemed to have subsided for the Christians, right? It's it's a a Christian society now, Christian-dumb, they called it. But there were times of intense conflict even then. Namely, there were many wars between kings and kingdoms in Europe. And one of these, one one set of of, uh, wars, was with the Norman conquest in the 12th century. The Norman armies landed in England. They came from the north part of France. They were actually a Viking ancestry that were allowed to live in northern France and then became powerful And they landed in England and spread through the land, and some of the Normans even invaded southern Italy. So they kind of went a couple different directions. And depending on where the wars were fought and the relationship of the churches to the kings, many Christians were forced to live under long sieges. And these kinds of warfare uh, sieges were built um, around cities and sometimes for a few years, trying to starve the people out. And if there were Christians in there, they're suffering under that. Their farms were sacked. When these armies went out across the land, they were often pillaging the farms for food for their their animals and for the people. The armies marched through the land of many Christians. The church wasn't directly attacked as the church, but it still lived in a time of intense conflict. The Protestant Reformation was a time of shakeup for the church, but also was a time when kings aligned themselves with different churches. And they attacked those churches that they considered a threat to their kingdom. And for various churches at various times in various places, the conflict intensified. Then the age of the Enlightenment began in Europe. There was much free thinking and a huge shift in the mind of European society. Humanity became the center of society, not God. Enlightenment thinking believed God was mostly disinterested in the world. 
It said we have our own self-creating powers and our desire is basically good. So it was believed that grace is not really necessary. Consequently, we can redeem ourselves. What was growing during the Enlightenment can be called exclusive humanism. Conflict with Christians who held to older, more orthodox Christianity grew. The conflict grew with them. Enlightenment thinkers attacked the church. They didn't attack it physically. They attacked the historic Christian faith. Miracles were dismissed as superstition. God was not working in the world, they said. God's concern for us was only that we flourish, and so being condemned because of our sin was offensive to Enlightenment thinkers. The free thinking of the Enlightenment was not so much a physical attack on the church, but a conflict with the faith of the church, and it was intense, and we're still dealing with the effects of that. Finally, in the modern period, there have been times when the conflict against Christians was standard, was room temperature, but at other times it became intense. And the intensity rose with many of the ideologies that grew up in, grew up in the world in the 20th century and even now in the 21st century. Marxism and its atheism, communism's opposition to the church, especially in places like China and, and Soviet Union, fascism and its desire to control the church, gender ideology and its powerful effort to silence the church. And when these ideologies took hold of society, the conflict with the church became intense. We Christians have lived with intense conflict in this world from the beginning until now. Now, I've reviewed all of this for you, partly because I'm taking my cue from Daniel, <clears throat> but to show you that conflict, or what we might call tribulation, is not just something in the future for the church, which has been the way some people have tried to use uh, some, some of the writings in Scripture, like Daniel, that there's going to be, and maybe things will be more intense in the future, but they've been intense before. And to think that it's all just off in the future is ignoring the reality of the conflict the church has had to live with um, from the beginning. Daniel and the Jews and we Christians have lived with conflict, conflict, sometimes intense, and we've lived with it all along. So when we suddenly notice the heat's churned up, we need to stop and realize, wait, it's been churned up before. Our lesson from Daniel does not just speak of the times. It also tells us how to live in the conflict that comes our way in this world. And it's there with those last words of Gabriel, the last words that Gabriel speaks to Daniel in verse 27. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And for the Jews, the desolator was Antiochus IV, or maybe you could say Jason. Jesus picks up Daniel's desolation language for later intense conflicts for his disciples, and we heard that in our gospel lesson this morning. Jesus mentions the abomination of desolation and its impact on his disciples. But what we must not miss with Gabriel's words is the promise. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That is God's promise. Jesus reiterated this promise when he was talking about the conflict his disciples would face. He said, when they will see the Son of Man, that is Jesus, coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of heaven. That is God's promise to us. Throughout scripture, we read God's promises and they are all gathered up in Jesus Christ. Our epistle lesson says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. They all come together in him. 
And therefore, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, the promises of God are for us. And that includes the end of the conflict and the intense conflict that the church has had to live with in this world. Now, it can be discouraging, to say the least, for us Christians living in intense conflict in this world. We haven't had it too bad, at least not in our lifetimes in this country, but we hear about Christians living in other places. And don't you sometimes just think, how do they do it? How do they just not capitulate, give in, say, okay, I give up, let me free me from jail? But they don't. They continue to live in the conflict. And for us, that conflict seems to be more and more the case for, for now. And so we might want to give up. And there are Christians who want to adopt the mindset of our society, and that's certainly easier than living in conflict. It's a lot easier just to blend in and merge with what our society is saying and doing. It reduces the pressure. But Scripture teaches us that if we are God's people, if we follow Jesus Christ, we will have to live with conflict in this world. And the way we live with the conflict is believing the promises of God that are gathered up in Jesus Christ. And that's why when the government of China demolishes the church buildings, the Christians gather in other places and begin to rebuild. We hear those stories. And that's why when the church is told to shut up about God creating us male and female, we keep opening our mouths and proclaiming the gospel. And that's why when outspoken voices in our society declare that marriage is a shackle that needs to be tossed aside, we still honor marriage and promote it as good for society. And that's why when the dominant belief in our society is that we are self-sufficient and we can flourish without God, we come right back at it and tell people that we must have God's salvation and he is active in our world working out his purposes. Living by the promise of God in the conflict of this world is exciting. It's exciting because we're waiting to see what God will do. God will bring an end to the desolator, to all of the desolators. Now, we may not see this happen completely in our lifetime, but we can see it being dismantled at least in part. For example, Carl Truman, who's an ordained minister and professor over at Grove City, but an ordained minister in our denomination, Carl Truman wrote recently of being interviewed by Constantine Kisson, who has a podcast and who was, Kisson was, a devotee of the new atheists. He he counted himself among them, and he actually just very, uh, uh, very much followed after them. Kisson now considers himself a lapsed atheist. (laughs) So, um, and he's asking honest questions about the transgender movement. So he, he interviewed Carl Truman, and, he was, and Truman said it was, it was a really great interview. He wasn't trying to attack him or, you know, poke his finger in the eye or anything like that. He was asking honest questions. And he asked Truman, he said, is it possible to build a moral society on the basis of atheism? And so Carl went on to read that. If you want to, you can look it up. On first things, um, it, the, the, it's just a short little um, post that Truman did. But this fellow, Kisson, has begun to doubt that that can happen, that you can build a society without some kind of foundation on God or some kind of transcendent understanding of things. And what that is is a crack in the conflict against the church. Now, it might be a small crack, and it may not turn into a very big crack, but it is a crack. 
So God is working out his promises in Jesus Christ. We can be discouraged while we live in the conflict in this world or with faith in Jesus Christ, in whom all the promises of God are brought to fruition, we can be excited. Let's pray. Grant, O most merciful God, that your church, being gathered together in unity by your Holy Spirit, may show forth your power among all peoples and our confidence in your promises. To the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand, let us confess our faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 521, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less.
Here's another promise Jesus gave. Jesus said, I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you shall see me because I live and you will live also. The Apostle Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper say, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, there are threats to the community of Christ. There is that sort of conflict that rests there for the church. Sometimes the conflict enters into the church. Unfortunately, the powers of sin threaten to undo us, and we, we know the realities of those powers. They come from without, but to be honest, we have to say they also come from within the church. Many dangers would destroy us if they could, but in this meal, our Lord assures us he's victorious over sin, and he will not let the powers of evil destroy the church. The Word of God says that God has disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them triumphing over them in Christ. And with faith in Jesus Christ and by the power of His grace, we now live with love for one another and we look to the interests of others. So as we come here in this communion meal, we must remember that we're communing together as much as we're communing with our Lord. With faith in Jesus Christ, we come professing our faith. We've been baptized. So all those who have been identified with Christ's body in that way, through baptism, profession of faith, being communicative members of a Christian church, you're welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. As you accept this gracious invitation of the Lord's table, you confirm that you are trusting Jesus Christ alone as your Savior from sin. You're endeavoring with all your heart to seek to live with love and concern for your fellow Christians with whom you'll be eating and drinking. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for all your blessings, we give you thanks for creating us in your image, providing all that we need to live in your creation, those gifts we have received this past week. We thank you for ruling over the nations of this world, but mostly we're bound to praise you for your great love with which you've drawn us to Jesus Christ and you've made us to sit with him in heavenly places. Truly, he is our peace. He's the one that brings us back to you. From that peace comes our peace with each other. Therefore, with the whole host of heaven, we worship and magnify your glorious name, forever praising you, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Most gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is once offering up of himself upon the cross, we now celebrate before you. We pray that you would bless and sanctify us, along with these your gifts of bread and the cup, which are set before us on this table, that we may receive by faith Christ crucified for us, that we by, uh, may feed upon him by faith, and that 
he may be made one with us and we with him. And in union with Christ's offering for himself, we offer ourselves, our soul and body to be a reasonable, holy, living sacrifice. We ask you mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, not for our merits, but because we've been joined with Christ and we make it with him. And in fellowship with all the faithful in heaven and earth, we pray that you fulfill in us the purpose of your glory and, and honor. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be the glory and the praise, both now and forever. Together we say, Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. 
Eternal God, you love us, you have chosen us, redeemed us through your Son, Jesus Christ, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for us. Grant that we may go into the world in the joy and strength of your Spirit to serve you and others through Christ the Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen. Final hymn is number 40, God is our refuge and our strength.
please be seated. And let's take a moment to look at the announcements in the bulletin. I have a couple additional ones as well. Uh, let's begin with the fact that today, in lieu of our uh, Christian education classes, we will have our fellowship dinner together. So we hope you can stay for that. Uh, also, uh, further out on the calendar, women's prayer meeting this Thursday at Deneen Roberts' home at 9 a.m. Um, and then the Friday evening prayer meets, okay. Uh, it's going to be at the Cowles. Okay, on August 10th? Okay, so that's, okay. That's a misprint. That's not the third, that's not the third Friday. So, at the Cowles, third Friday. 17. Mm-hmm. 17? Okay. Yes. Okay, because Catalpa, if you cross Catalpa, that's the last few years hasn't been too bad. Yeah, or go further south. Go 75 and then up. Toledo. Mr. Ryan, restrain yourself, please. <laughs> A week from this coming Friday. A week from Yeah, the day chalk. Yeah, that'd be that would be handy. Okay. Fifties attire, yes, I think. I think you should get an extra dessert if you come. All right. And the session is Happy to announce that we have spoken with, um, interviewed Paige Ackerman and for membership, and that it is our hope to receive her into membership next Sunday. We're grateful for the saving work of God in Paige's life and for bringing her to us for this at this time. Also, in New Horizons, the August-September issue, there is an article on page 16 written by our pastor, Jeffrey B. Wilson, on the idea of narrative, and narrative will likely be the theme of our Christian education classes this fall once the Gentle and Lowly series ends. So... Take one of these home, please. It's actually, I was asked to write on stewardship, but I did it in terms of narrative, so you can see what I did. Yeah. And Pastor has been keeping us updated as to the upcoming trial going on in a presbytery, which occurred this weekend, and I, I wonder if Elder Roberts could give us a report on that. A little bit long. 
All right, so uh, we had actually planned to meet for the trial for Friday and Saturday. Um, and uh, when we arrived in Grand Rapids, we, we basically uh, decided to dismiss the charges Friday morning uh, with prejudice. And what that may, means is that there was insufficient evidence to proceed really with the trial. And uh, therefore, in this case, the trial was against Pastor of Harvest, so he is, he is not guilty of the, of the charges. With prejudice, what that means is that this, these charges can't be brought up again to the press. So it was dismissed for lack of evidence, and let's imagine that they go find some new evidence. doesn't matter. They can't bring the, tri- the, the, the charges back up to the Presbyterian. So it is... In that, in that sense, it is a really strong, good outcome. Um, one of the things that I, I think it's important for us to keep in mind, that's why I wanted to speak to you all, is uh, in the course of the discussion on Friday morning, we got a sense for some of the harm and division and strife that Harvest has been going through uh, in the midst of these trials. It's not... I won't go into details, but it's been very, very divisive and harmful to the church, uh, and obviously also to Pastor Van Dyke's reputation and so forth. So uh, I want to urge all of us to be in prayer for um, Dale Van Dyke, uh, who's pastor at Harvest, uh, Michael Scout, who's the pastor at Grace Fellowship, who was also involved in this trial, Um, the Harvest Congregation, Grace Fellowships Congregation, uh, and their sessions. Just be in prayer for all of those people involved that that healing can occur. Um, We had gone through something, uh, had some similarities way back when, and um, I have a certain sympathy for how painful and how hard and how difficult uh, these types of things can be. So I'm urging all of you to be in prayer for them. I think that's it. So when we get the thumbs up, we'll eat.